This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, in Vanuatu, the government has finalised controversial plans to allow the cultivation and sale of medical cannabis. Some say other Pacific countries should follow suit. I feel that it could represent a good economic development for nations, island nations that can, can cultivate. And we find out why some Australian employers are welcoming Samoa's decision to reverse its freeze on seasonal workers. You know, you plan well in advance to get workers in. Um, and having these kind of disruptions interrupts business continuity. We also find out about the bird detectives in PNG who find out what species are in the area by studying flowers. But we could easily detect four different bird species, two honeyeater species, a satin bird and a thornbill. So, so that's pretty cool. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. We start in Fiji, where former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama was questioned by police over allegations of abuse in office. Now opposition leader Mr Bainimarama and his former Attorney General Ayaz Syed Kayum fronted the Criminal Investigations Department that was yesterday, where they were questioned for several hours. For more on the story, we're joined by ABC's reporter in Fiji, Lede Mavono, Yandra Vinake Lede. Yandra Priyanka and Yandra everyone. Yes, tell us, Lude, what do we know about these allegations against Frank Bainimarama and uh, his deputy or, you know, former Attorney General, Ayaz Syed Kayum? Um, look, we it, it's quite um, surreal scenes that we're seeing here, uh, Priyanka. These are men who were the most powerful, um, you know, in our country for for the last sixteen years. So it's um, it's it's quite a thing to see this happening. What we do know is that. Uh, Aya Said Kayum, the former Attorney General, uh, continues to be questioned over um, allegations, rather over complaints that were made about a press conference where he said things that people felt were insightful or inciting violence. And so complaints had been made by the then um, coalition party candidates, as well as um, human rights campaigner Shamima Ali. Uh, we are not quite sure yet as to what the exact allegations are uh, about Mr. Ben Murama but we do have a statement from police saying that it was um, based on earlier complaints. Um, we understand as well that there are allegations of um, abuse of office currently being leveled at the two. Mm, okay, interesting. So do we know how long they were under questioning? Was this by police? Have they been charged with anything? Priyanka, they are um, still to be charged. We do know from the two of them and from police sources that they the uh, the, the questioning uh, will continue today. They were called up to the Criminal Investigations Department headquarters um, in the city in Suva yesterday um, late in the afternoon and came out around 8 p.m. local time after five hours of mm. questioning. So uh, quite irregular sights to see. And what's been the reaction on the ground? As you said, 16 years, um, these two people have been in power in Fiji. Um, how are the public feeling about this, you know, extended questioning over their, over their actions? 
I think that uh, for many people, it's still quite surreal. And so a lot of people are still quite stunned um, to see these men um, humbled in this way and, and be held uh, for questioning for lengthy periods of time. Um, these were scenes that we saw happen in the 16 years that they were in power, but it was only um, usually conducted against um, you know, opposition or dissenting voices against the government. And to see the two of them um, you know, spend hours at the criminal investigations department has been quite um, shocking to see Priyanka. We're all still mm-hmm. reeling from it and still trying to find out what's happening. But they did receive um, a lot of support from PG First Party members, from youth campaigners, and from members of their social media team. Uh, and there was even cover drinking, um, uh, you know, conducted out, right outside the CID office when they came out. Uh, lots of hugging on the streets as fellow MPs showed support for um, uh, what they had just gone through. Wow, interesting. I mean, you you said that, you know, this is the scenes that we'd see when Mr. Bainumarama was in power against his opposition. Are there concerns that a bit of tit-for-tat is going on here with this new government? Priyanka, there's definitely concerns, and those concerns are being voiced now uh, all over social media, you know, people questioning uh, whether these are vengeful actions, people questioning whether or not, um, you know, these are appropriate actions for the kind of complaints that are being made, uh, particularly given that the the questioning is being conducted over uh, quite lengthy periods of time. So uh, we are beginning to see um, vocal opposition to the questioning, especially given that it's not just them that's being called up to CID. Yes, yes. And we'll get to some of the others soon. Um, but Lide, I wanted to ask you first, this comes just a day after Mr. Bainimarama delivered a controversial speech in Parliament. And he's been criticised for that street speech as being treasonous. Uh, can you tell us what was so offensive about what he said? Um, Priyanka, well, see, our laws on on treason are very specific on what constitutes a treasonous act, and it's almost explicitly related to either, you know, harming or causing harm or or death onto the president and prime minister. And and the other acts associated with our treason uh, legislation is associated with, you know, causing war or or inviting enemies to invade Fiji. So um, we have to get a bit more advice on, you know, whether or not this was treasonous. However, I do understand from information um, uh, from sources close to the government that we expect an announcement today um, that the government uh, members of parliament are going to refer the former prime minister to the parliament privileges committee for breaches of standing order 62. Now, what was um, most insulting uh, about what Bainimarama said is that he accused President Katunivere of failing the Fijian people. And he said that Katunivere would go down in history as the person who aided and abetted in a divisive government and didn't protect the values and and principles of the constitution. So um, the Standing Order 62 is very specific that you cannot make accusations against, you know, uh, specific members of the the legislature and of the judiciary and and accuse them of motive for which you don't have enough evidence. So you basically can't make wild accusations um, in parliament in that way. But also these standing orders are very specific that you don't don't 
even um, mention um, the, the president. You don't um, in, invoke his name in the parliament to have any kind of influence over, um, you know, either the, the, the committees of parliament or what's happening in parliament at the time. Mm. So these seem like clear breaches, and we expect to be um, hearing from the government, uh, uh, the government's parliamentary caucus today. And this is especially significant, Priyanka, because the current speaker of parliament, Ratunenga Malalambalavu, was himself suspended for two years for a very similar offence, but against the then speaker of, of, of the house. And the other politically significant part of this is President Ruliami Katunivere was formerly the president of the Fiji First Party. So um, oh. these are, are pretty shocking developments. Yes. So it seems like uh, party members perhaps going after each other. I mean, considering that Mr. Baini Marama has been referred to the Parliamentary Privileges Committee, as you said, Lude, is there a chance he might be censured for his actions? Uh, well, look, like, like I mentioned, uh, President, um, sorry, the, the Speaker of the House, Ratunengama uh, Lalambalavu, was himself thrown out of Parliament for two years. So it was a, a very good part of his um, uh, uh, tenure in Parliament that he could not participate in, and that was for making remarks against the Speaker. So um, Mr. Marimarama has not yet been referred to the Privileges Committee, but I understand mm. that an announcement will be made in the coming days where this will be done, and it's almost sure um, consequences to that uh, um, those actions, Priyanka. So um, it's going to be an, an, an interesting next few weeks, or, or at least the next sitting of Parliament is going to be interesting because um, this might just be a situation where we will not um, see, we will see Mbani Marama um, be taken to task. Yes, yes, very interesting stuff. We've got to remember Mr. Bainimarama is not just the former Prime Minister, but also the leader of the opposition now. So um, having him be taken to task in such a way could be significant for, for robust democracy in the country. Isn't that right, Lude? Absolutely, Priyanka. And given that we already do not have um, Ayaz Said Kayum, the former Attorney General, the people, the person that people see as the actual leader of the Fiji First Party. I mean, he is, uh, he was at least before he lost his seat in Parliament. He was the leader of the party, the General Secretary of the party, and the man that people credit with, you know, um, the structure and the design of the Fiji First Party, and of course, lots of his successes. But uh, aside from that, he was uh, quite a dynamic orator and and quite. Uh, um, an exciting feature of parliament, if I can <laughs> call it that. And his absence has most definitely been felt. Um, next to him is, of course, the former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama, who himself also is is, a ve- is is the leader of the party, the face of the party, the reason um, the party has succeeded over the last three, uh, the last two elections. So um, it is going to be very interesting times in, in Fiji's um, political developments in the next few weeks. Yes, yes, indeed. And just before we go, Lude, I wanted to touch on something you mentioned earlier, the, the larger context here, because um, Mr. Syed Kayum and Mr. Bainimarama are not the only two prominent people to appear before police. We have been reporting here over the past week, um, Sitimini Ingilio, the former police commissioner, um, was also questioned. We've also seen human rights activists appear before the police. Are there concerns here that the government is targeting its opposition, is targeting members of the public, is taking things a bit too far? Uh, Priyanka, the, the, the Home Affairs Minister has been quick 
to negate these ac- the accusations because questions have been put to him, um, you know, by the media and of course by uh, uh, vocal human rights um, uh, activists asking if these are inappropriate actions for, uh, well, you know, not equating the kind of um, uh, accusations being made. Uh, and and he's saying that you know the police are acting on their own accord. The police now under new leadership. Uh, but it, it, these are familiar scenes. These are familiar scenes that people have seen for the last 16 years and scenes that they voted against mm-hmm. and, and did not want to see anymore and who were vocal about, you know, not living in a police state. So, um, for example, in the case of Rashika Dell, a social media commentator on human rights issues, uh, she was taken up for a post that she made alleging police brutality. Now, it must be said that um, the, the incident that she refers to has not resulted in a police uh, case. You know, no one made a police complaint. However, um, um, the kind of um, the hours that she spent up at CID being questioned on it, uh, people have said that this may be inappropriate, maybe too severe for the kind of complaint um, uh, that was being made against her. And so uh, people are worried. There are some concerns. They have not been very loud yet, uh, but people are seeing a pattern and are asking for an explanation for that, Priyanka. Mm, yes, very interesting uh, stuff there, Lide. Thank you for the update. Mm. That was Lide Mavono, ABC's reporter in Suva, Fiji, there telling us about that very interesting questioning of former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama. You're listening to Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia. I hope you're having a lovely Wednesday morning. As Samoa ends a temporary freeze on sending seasonal workers abroad, the group representing Australia's employers say they want more clarity about the plans. Samoa temporarily blocked workers coming to Australia and New Zealand, but plans to resume sending them again are starting, and they hope to start uh, start the program again this month. Steve Bedett, executive officer of the group Approved Employees Australia, says they have been in talks with Samoa of the past few months. We've been in uh, regular correspondence with Samoa. I think um, uh, the first thing is that we do respect their decision to make the decisions that they have. Uh, the issue that we've pointed out to them very clearly that um, it has been very disruptive for AEs because, you know, you plan well in advance to get workers in um, and having these kind of disruptions interrupts business continuity and it lets a lot of people down in the process. Uh, so we've encouraged them to come out with a, a firm statement so we can know what the rules are and what the arrangements are going forward rather than have uh, bits and pieces uh, you know, to work on and, and this uncertainty. So we just hope that this now leads to more business continuity because otherwise it's very disruptive uh, to AEs. I mean... If you're an AE trying to plan your labor requirements and you have this disruption, uh, you've got to start thinking, is it worth the risk or do I go elsewhere? And I think that's what uh, we are concerned about. Mm-hmm. Can you just maybe paint a picture for our listeners of what sort of effect it had when that freeze came into effect on businesses here? People had already made a lot of arrangements in terms of flights, uh, you know, recruitment of workers, um, they've made commitments to um, their host employers. And then when that freezes, uh, you've got to now scramble to go and get alternative uh, labor for them. 
And that, that is not a, a quick process. I mean, we're talking eight to ten weeks from the time you, you start the recruitment process until they land in Australia. So, you know, we need to have certainty about what those rules are and um, how, they, how AEs must go about it. And I think it's all about communication, quite frankly, because the implications of these kind of decisions have a huge effect. But I emphasize we, we respect their decision. I just think it's about the communication and letting um, approved employers know well in advance what their intentions are. And what's your understanding? What will change from now on? From our understanding is that the approvals in February will go ahead. Those recruitment plans and people that have been approved to come to Australia will uh, be able to arrive. Um, but that's, that's capped at, I think, at 200 or 240 workers. Then in, in March, it's still uncertain, and they want to move towards a village uh, model. Now, we're not too sure what that actually means. We have asked them what, to let us know what that means, what that involves, and whether it's actually going to impact on the recruitment process. Because if it's going to delay the recruitment process, then we need to plan even further in advance. We were in Samoa um, in November at the PLAM conference, and we visited all the villages and, and regions, uh, you know, in that in the district. Sorry, the villages and the districts while we were there. So their concerns are is that they've got a brain drain themselves. That's the first thing, and I, and they are very concerned about the social issues that are that they're experiencing with their workers in Australia. So there's been family separations, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they just want their workers to work their contract and go home after their contract. So. They also have made it very clear that they workers that we cannot extend their contracts one and that they must go home after their their contracts expire so on in the short term it's no longer than nine months and in the long term uh, stream it's no longer than three years now we respect that um, there's no issue with that but um, at least we know what the issues are and is there anything that you think employers can do to help them to alleviate those fears in a way? We've called for, and you know, meetings. We we normally have quite regular meetings with different uh, sending countries just to work through some of the issues. We are planning as an association to go to the Pacific this year and meet with uh, the different sending countries to work through some of these issues and see how we can resolve it from both sides. Because at the end of the day, you know, this is a very valuable program. We highly value the Pacific and their inputs. I think it's a question of the, the people that are going to make this work are actually the sending countries and the people that are employing the workers, which are the approved employers. So we really need to get our engage with them, get the dialogue going and work through some of the challenges that both sides have. You know, each country is quite unique in what they want to do. So we want to just understand what their position is from an association's point of view. Uh, what are the um, expectations? Because... We've got to manage expectations. You're dealing with 10 different countries, and uh, each country has got you know, different ideas of the world. So it's just about improving communication and making sure that you know, we, we maximize the scheme in accordance, in accordance with their expectation and our own and make it work. And what about the government's plans to, you know, to give more scope to those extensions, to give more scope for permanent um, stay, etc.? It's not as simple as everybody thinks. Uh, you know, having all these initiatives is one thing. At the end of the day, we've got to make sure that we recruit the right people for the positions that are available in Australia. I think that's the key. 
if we can, we need to do a lot more work with recruitment, selection, education, and mobilisation of workers in their countries, and then repeat that when they get to Australia. That I, I cannot emphasise that more. And we will work with government to do that, um, to make sure that uh, all parties work hard towards just improving and refining a good scheme that's in place at the moment. That was Steve Burdett from Approved Employees Australia speaking there to reporter Dubrovka Volodair. And we have reached out to the Samoan government about their plans around seasonal work. We are still awaiting a response. But first... Vanuatu will soon offer licenses allowing businesses to grow and sell medical cannabis and hemp around the country. It comes as other Pacific islands also take steps to legalize the sale and production of the plant, also called marijuana. But the move is controversial, with some saying governments should instead look at supporting traditional products rather than entering this new market. I took a closer look at what lies ahead for Vanuatu and the Pacific. Former policeman Iso Kapum from the island of Tana in Vanuatu wasn't always a big supporter of cannabis. When he was working, he'd often see the ugly side of the drug. Most of my time being chasing uh, the criminals and uh, one of the things that happens to be the the criminals in Vanuatu is the consumption or illegal consumption of the marijuana. But a meeting with Australian businessman Andrew Smith changed Mr Kapum's mind on the matter. He came to see cannabis, the plant that produces the marijuana drug, but also other products like oil, medicine and hemp, as a new market for his people. I believe that uh, it is more reliable after doing so much uh, research and so much findings on, on this product. I tend to find out that it is very, very valuable to the islands of the south uh, of the uh, southern hemisphere. The Vanuatu government is also banking on that high value of cannabis too. It recently passed regulations to allow the import, cultivation, production and sale of medical cannabis and hemp in the country. Once the regulations are gazetted, seven licenses will be sold to businesses at a cost of 10 million vatu or 12,000 Australian dollars each. Mr. Kapum, whose company Tafea Industries is planning to apply for the license to grow and sell medical cannabis, says he's grateful the country is taking these steps. We want to make it look uh, a company that is owned by the people and for the people because at the end of the day, we, we want people to get have a direct benefit on it. But not everyone is on board. Mr. Kapum and his Australian business partner were run out of his house when they first started discussing their plans to start a cannabis farm. My wife uh, drew us out of the door and asked us to leave because he, she thought it was something that is going to be forbidden to talk about. And though Mr. Kapum's wife is now on board, others are still not convinced. On the social side, I think it's a dangerous decision that the government has made. Sam Nayu is the Tafia province agricultural officer from Tana Island. When we're asleep in the night, someone can sneak through the fence and steal the marijuana. Maybe the government can introduce the product somewhere remote, where the population is low. Don't go to Tana first, but allow it in a place where it's easier to control, 
where security is strong and the production is safe. But Mr Nayu also sees the potential in cannabis production for the people of Tanna. Now the island's most lucrative crops are coffee and vanilla, products that are very vulnerable to climate change and extreme weather. Cannabis could provide another money crop, but Mr Nayu says there are other ways the government can support local farmers. Vanuatu hasn't even exported a local root crop, but now it wants to export something like marijuana that brings risks to this place. We're already happy here, selling our local fruits and vegetables at a small scale. It's not the first time Vanuatu has dabbled in medicinal cannabis. In 2019, a company, Phoenix Life Sciences, controversially made a deal with the government to test its cannabis-derived pills on diabetes patients. The project never got off the ground, and its founder was convicted of securities fraud in the United States. But Mr. Smith, the co-founder of Tafea Industries, says people need to be educated about what the plant can offer. This is not the holy grail of medicine. These claims need to be substantiated through uh, medical professionals and uh, the desired professionals before they're made by any companies at all. And he says his company will look at developing medicinal plants that can't be abused as a drug. We can actually decrease the uh, THC content in local plants, making them sort of uh, useless to smoke over the period of time. Now, this is an advantage for um, any of the areas in Vanuatu that have a problem with locally grown cannabis. It'll essentially make the local plant ineffective for smoking and of no use. Vanuatu is not the only Pacific country looking to legalise the production and sale of medical marijuana. In Cook Islands, a government team has been appointed to look into the issue. And in Guam, the first licences have already been given out to local businesses to start selling cannabis. Charlie Hermosa has applied for a licence on the US territory, not to grow marijuana, but to deliver it using his fleet of drones. When we started looking at industries that were really moving uh, forward, you know, we, we thought that, you know, our application of drones would really play well within the, the industry of cannabis, understanding that there's other regulations that come to it. He's grateful that Guam has welcomed the new industry and says cannabis could provide a lucrative income stream to other Pacific nations as well. I feel that it could represent a good economic development for nations, island nations that can, can cultivate in, in, in a way that can commercialize and produce you know, and, and sell and create another economic uh, way to be able to you know, make money. Vanuatu, though, is looking for established companies to start growing on its islands. To be eligible for its cannabis licenses, businesses must have at least 10 years' experience in the field. The government says it's one way to manage the high risk around the drug. And we have invited the Vanuatu government to speak to us about its plans around cannabis cultivation. We're still awaiting a response. Celebrate the pride of the Pacific. You know, we're proud of our country and our heritage. Stay up to date with all the latest sporting news. So emotional when Tom got there and you sing the, you know, the national anthem. And hear inspiring stories from some of the Pacific's finest athletes. I've grown so much confidence within myself and I never thought I would be the player that I am today. Watch That Pacific Sports Show Wednesday nights at 7 PNG time on ABC Australia. Hold the front page! A 
bit late this morning on Pacific Beat, but better late than never. It's time to find out what's making news around the region. And to do that, we're joined by Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Um, now, let's start, um, well, in the United States, interestingly enough, um, there has been that Micronesian summit happening um, with a lot of, I guess, territories or, or countries that are close has close ties with um, the United States. And now we find out that the president, Joe Biden, might be visiting the Pacific region and particularly Micronesia soon. Is that right? Yeah, it might be the key word here, actually. So uh, those Micronesian countries have declared he will visit as part of efforts to ramp up diplomatic engagement with the region. So those countries are Palau, Nauru, the Federated States of Micronesia, Kiribati and the Marshall Islands. And they actually released a joint statement saying they welcomed President Biden's visit uh, for a leaders' summit, which seems to indicate that Mr. Biden will attend the Pacific Islands Leaders' Summit in the Cook Islands later this year. Oh, interesting. Mm. So, yes, that um, Micronesian Leaders' Summit is happening at the moment, I understand. Um, and, you know, Kiribati is, is, has been welcomed back into the foray. I guess this is the first step before they finally meet the other Pacific leaders. Um, but, so it sounds like they've announced plans Mr. Biden might be visiting, <laughs> but has the US confirmed these plans? Yeah, it makes you wonder if they might have let something slip. Um, <laughs> but no, to answer your question, uh, no, the US hasn't ah, confirmed anything yet. Uh, speculation has been building, though, that the president will travel to the region after holding that landmark Pacific summit uh, last year in Washington. Um, it's worth pointing out as well that in that same statement, all five of those Micronesian nations endorsed the agreement, paving the way for Kiribati to rejoin mm. uh, the Pacific Islands Forum as well. So, yeah, a bit to come out of that one little statement, but uh, yeah, we'll see if anything comes to fruition uh, in regards to Mr. Biden. Yes, interesting. I wonder if it's a it's a sort of um, diplomatic ploy to to encourage Mr. Biden to come. You know, we put it in the mm. statement. You you can't go back on if that. If it is, good on them. I feel like the US seems to dictate <laughs> a lot of things. I know. Yeah, so, time, time yeah. the Pacific uh, dictates uh, his calendar. Uh, very interesting. We'll, we'll find out if it actually pans out. Probably means we're all going to the Cook Islands if that's the case, doesn't uh, it? Oh, maybe. <laughs> Yes, with Biden's there, yes. Um, yes, we had lots of fun in Fiji last year during the Pacific Islands Forum. Hopefully we can return this year. Um, now let's head to New Zealand. Yesterday we were covering those really tragic um, circumstances around Cyclone Gabriel, or the ex-Cyclone Gabriel, who's still wreaking havoc around areas of Auckland and, and the surrounding suburbs. Um, but now we, we're hearing that seasonal workers have been rescued after being caught in dangerous floodwaters in New Zealand. What has happened? Yeah, so uh, dozens of uh, Tongan workers have actually had a lucky escape after becoming stranded uh, on top of a uh, on top of a, a series of flooded bungalows uh, in the in the Nap- in Napier uh, on New Zealand's north uh, North Island. So this is reported by RNZ, uh, who said they became stranded after water burst from a nearby river uh, due to that heavy downpour from. Mm. From Cyclone Gabriel. Um, luckily, though, police were able to helicopter helicopter them out of there. Oh well, that's that's good to know. Were they un, uh, harmed in any way? Do they have any injuries? I don't believe so. Uh, however, most of them lost pretty much all their possessions, mm. um, which you know, which is which is quite tragic. Um, they were stranded for a number of hours as well because it wasn't possible to get them by boat um, just due to the severity of the water. Uh, no support. Not surprisingly, they were they were cold and hungry. Um, but interestingly, all of them were actually survivors of the. Uh, of the Tonga volcano disaster. Uh, so I guess in some ways you could say they've probably been through worse. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. But you, you'd hope that w- one is enough. One, one, yeah. one natural disaster is enough to survive, um, let alone two in two years. So, um, yeah, our thoughts go 
go to those um, seasonal workers there in, in New Zealand and, and everyone else who's dealing with this that flooding. Um, hopefully, people are doing well and uh, able to save what they can. Um, and now let's head to Papua New Guinea, where a former army commander might have his book turned into a Hollywood movie. Uh, what is that about? Yeah, really flashy one, this one. So uh, Major Major General Jerry Singrock, uh, his book, A Matter of Conscience, which was launched last year, uh, has actually piqued the interest of Hollywood directors. Mm. So this was actually on the front page of the Post Courier this morning. Um, and they've said that on February 24, the former commander will officially pitch his book at the Beverly Hills Hilton uh, to, to producers in L.A., Wow, that sounds that sounds like a movie story in itself. Um, but, I know it does. But what, what do we know? What the the book is about? What he wants to pitch? Yeah, so it centres around the Sandline Affair, which uh-huh. was a, a political scandal in the nineteen nineties. Um, you know, very much a defining period of, of the country's political history. Um, and if it gets picked up, it would actually be the first PNG film uh, to be produced by Hollywood, and which is actually shot in PNG. So yeah, look, it would you know, there's a bit of excitement around it. It would obviously provide a, a huge boost to the PNG film industry um, and just, you know, in, in terms of inspiring more people to tell stories and things like that. And yeah, if it gets made, I suppose what a scene it would be in terms of, you know, film film crews, caterers, locals, you know, things like that. Yes, yes. And the Sandline Affair was, yeah, it was a defining moment in political history in, in Papua New Guinea. I've, I've read a bit about it and don't know enough. Um, but I do know it was very dramatic and involved mm. a lot of a lot of players around the region. So it would be very, very interesting. Uh, yeah, I wonder what Hollywood, um, the Hollywood folks are after when they when it comes to you know greenlighting a, a project. Oh, they're always looking for fresh stories. And uh, yeah. and look, you know, PNG, it's it's probably got a lot to offer. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. We'll see what comes out of that. I, I wonder if um, people might think that um, Major General Singrox might might provide one view, but maybe there are other views that should mm. also be explored. So. Yeah, we'll, we'll find out what, what happens. Um, but thank you, Carl, for those stories. Thank you, Priyanka. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Imagine if you could determine what birds have been in the area just by studying the flowers they like to eat. It sounds like some serious detective work, but that's exactly what a group of scientists has done in P- Papua New Guinea. Dr. Nude Johnson was part of the team that stumbled on the discovery somewhat by accident. Speaking with Marion Farr, Dr. Johnson began by explaining how his research focuses on bird life all around the Pacific. At sort of the centre of this archipelago is New Guinea. So New Guinea is the largest tropical island in the world and has an extraordinary amount of, well, biodiversity overall, but also birds uh, and, and a number of species that are only found in New Guinea. So, so that plays a central role in all the research that we do. Now, you have recently done some research in Papua New Guinea that involves the use of eDNA. What is eDNA and what inspired this research? DNA is is basically the blueprint behind everything in all organisms. So in every cell in in the body, there's DNA, and that determines what species look like and how they behave and and, and the colours, everything, colours, shape, size, everything. The little E in front of the DNA stands for environmental DNA. So what people have done over the last few decades is they go out, they take a water sample, for example, and there's traces of DNA from all the animals and plants and and other things that are in the water 
And so by taking a sample of water and sequencing the DNA that's in that water sample, you can figure out uh, what species have been in the water. Mm. Um, more recently, people have started taking uh, air samples, and we've taken it now to also investigate flowers because we're interested in the animals that specifically visit particular flowers or plants. What made you decide to conduct this research on uh, eDNA and flowers in Papua New Guinea? So we've been going to, to, to the region, um, Indonesia and New Guinea, for the, for the past more than 10 years and, and done work on, on the relationships of species and populations. And a lot of things in research happen sort of randomly in the, in the sense that you set out to do something, all of a sudden you realize that, hey, this is possible as well. Me being interested in birds thought, oh, you know, this is a good opportunity to try and figure out what sort of interactions exist, uh, in this case, in the highlands of New Guinea. So we're in New Guinea doing other work and we thought, oh, we might as well also sample some flowers to try and see if, if this could work. And, and what did you find? So we collected some flowers, brought them back home, sequenced them and found traces of four different uh, bird species that we know occur in, in that area. So this was up in, 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 the, in the mountains just north of Port Moresby, so up at, at about 3,000 metres elevation. And up there, there aren't that many bird species, but, but we could easily detect four different bird species, two honeyeater species, a satin bird and a thornbill. So, so that's pretty cool in, in the sense that, that we can actually detect bird species. So, so that means the method works and, and we can actually go out and sample flowers and figure out what bird species have visited these specific flowers. And what do these findings mean for science and I guess ecological studies more generally? Well, it pretty much means that the only way to find out what species visit what flowers would be to either spend an inordinate amount of time in an area just watching the flowers and watching what birds come and visit the flowers, or you could place cameras uh, around the flowers to figure out what birds have visited the flowers. And in this case, there's a lot of time and, and money to be saved by, by going out and simply sampling the flowers and figure out what, what birds have visited these flowers. On, on a more broader scale, it means that this is, this is um, you know, a, a big ecological thing uh, to, to, to work out what sort of relationships uh, exist out in, in nature. And obviously, as you might know, uh, bees pollinate flowers and, and, you know, we have an insect apocalypse going on at the moment. If we lose a lot of pollinators, well, we lose a lot of fruits and, and other things that are important to, to humans. So it's a very important thing to know what interactions uh, exist out in, in nature. Absolutely. Now, speaking of interactions in nature, you um, have studied birds right across the Pacific over a really vast area, vast and expansive and fascinating area. Do you have a, um, a personal favourite? What's your favourite bird in the Pacific? Ah, uh, <laughs> that's a difficult one. Uh... To, to any ornithologist or any bird watcher, I think New Guinea is probably 
the one place on the planet that you want to go to uh, mostly because of birds of paradise. Most people have heard of those. These are birds where the males have these amazing male plumages and, and, and they come in all sorts of colors and shapes. So, so birds of paradise are certainly up there. Um, it's, it's a very fascinating group, honey eaters uh, in the region, which is also, it's a very uh, diverse group of birds that, that are only found in Australia, New Guinea and, and the surrounding archipelagos. And, and they also come in an, an enormous variety of sizes and, and shapes and, and colours. That was a Dr. Nerd Johnson speaking there with reporter Marion Farr. You're listening to Pacific Beach on your Wednesday morning. Dragon fruit, a plant indigenous to the Pacific coast of South America, is finding some fans closer to home too. Samoan farmers are experimenting with growing the tropical fruit and its popularity is growing in Australia as well. The bright coloured fruit comes in more than 100 varieties and is a type of cactus. Erin Semler visited a central Queensland plantation to find out more. Late at night on this central Queensland farm, dragon fruit grower Gary Lee is vacuuming pollen. There is varieties that are self-pollinating, but there's a lot probably that aren't self-pollinating. To ensure that we get a reasonable amount of fruit out of any flush of flowers, you know, we vacuum pollen overnight because they're a, a night-blooming plant, so that the flower only opens up sort of 8, 9 o'clock at night and then it's gone by 8, 9 o'clock in the morning. So I normally vacuum overnight and, and collect pollen, and then in the morning we go out hand pollinating with a, you know, just one of, an old uh, makeup brush and a container of pollen. It took one taste of the tropical fruit for Gary and his wife Sue to start their own plantation. We did a family trip to Vietnam, and while we were there, they were serving dragon fruit. I didn't know anything about dragon fruit prior to that so that was probably about seven years ago and from there I thought what are you know like what are they and um, googled it and found out that they were cactus of all things and produced this you know these quite nice fruit and then they also had these you know really really pretty flowers so from there when we got home I um, decided that you know we'd just bought this block of land you know we had all this space that we could do something with so we just started out it was just a hobby um, growing you know, um, we had probably about 50 plants, I suppose. And then uh, from there, we're just collecting more and more varieties. And then Sue, my wife, decided that it might be a good idea to plant a few because they grew really well and sell at the local market. Well, that's kind of got out of hand. And we, you know, gone from a handful of plants to over 3,000 plants. And we still want to put in another 400. And um, we're up to about 92 varieties of different dragon fruit. The couple puts a lot of time and money into the farm near Rockhampton. They're very labour intensive, very hands-on. Irrigation, fertilisation, um, a lot of pruning work. Uh, picking is all done by hand. Each individual uh, fruit is picked by hand. Because they're a cactus, they're prickly. Gary works in an underground coal mine while Sue runs a childcare business. We work week on, week off, so there's a week uh, where I go away and then when I come home it's full-on farm work and Sue's the same, like she's got a, her, her business. I work four days a week doing family daycare. If I'm picking fruit, I get up at about 4.30 um, and I go and pick fruit 
uh, come inside and then get ready for work. Of an evening when I finish work, I go out and I work in the paddock for a couple of hours. Mowing's probably one of my major jobs, keeping the farm clean and tidy. AgriFutures Australia says domestic demand for fresh dragon fruit has grown rapidly. Griffith University nutrition and dietetics lecturer Lisa Vince says the fruit has unique health benefits. So it's got about twice the amount of fibre that, say, about 150 grams serve of, of mango does. And I say 150 grams because that's what the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating classes as a serve of fruit. What the research actually shows us with dragon fruit or what we're starting to see is people who have pre-diabetes, so that's a, a condition that um, may then go on to um, develop diabetes or people who have diabetes, it may actually help them to control their blood sugar levels, which is a really fantastic thing. So in terms of a fruit to eat, um, absolutely, it's it's a good one. The bright coloured fruit is also popular for its aesthetic. What's nice about dragon fruit is it looks amazing. So it can make you want to eat your food, want to eat a smoothie bowl, or your yoghurt, your granola, because it's got those beautiful colours through it. Um, I mean, we are seeing in the research that some of the antioxidants in there may help to protect against some cell damage. But, you know, the research in this area is fairly new. For Sue and Gary, farming has become a way of life. Work is only work if you don't enjoy it. This is our hobby, this is our enjoyment. Even though it's hard work and it's hot because they're a summer blooming plant, you know, I find it really rewarding, especially when you get, you know, nice quality, really big fruit. They have plans to expand the plantation and eventually use it as a semi-retirement plan. We're not scared of a bit of hard work and I think what you put into your, your farm is what you get out of it. Now that was a dragon fruit farmer, Suli, ending that report from Erin Semler. And you can read more about that story and see Gary vacuuming Poland at, by heading to the ABC website. And with that, we come to the end of Pacific Beat. And you can, in fact, check out all our stories that were featured in the show today and every other day by heading to the ABC Pacific website. You can just type that into your search engine and head to us. And as always, I'd love to call out to you to speak to us. Tell us about the stories that you want to hear more about or your opinions in any of the stories. We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can find us on all the socials at ABC Pacific is our name. You can also reach us online via email. I believe it's pacific at abc.net.au. I'll be back same time tomorrow. Until then, have a lovely day.